when we think of the regions of the United States, of Canada, that have faced the highest costs of trade and globalization, places like southwestern Ontario, Quebec, certainly the Rust Belt in the Midwest in the U.S., those are all places that really stand to benefit substantially from this transition and reshoring of the kind of supply chain related to electric vehicles. We're bringing new jobs, new investment, new opportunities to places that you know haven't seen nearly as much growth in those sectors for a long time. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Today, we're speaking to BMO economist Eric Johnson on the topic of electric vehicles. Eric's focus includes coverage of the auto sector, and he's been tracking the evolution of the demand and supply side of the zero emissions vehicle market. The growth of that market will be critical to a transition towards net zero, and it's a big focus of our sustainability work at BMO. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and your work, the work of the economics department at BMO and, and how that relates to sustainability. Absolutely. So, you know, in the economics department, we do a mix of things. So one of them is obviously the more traditional market coverage piece of, you know, any economic shop in capital markets. But, you know, a lot of the other work we do is more on the sort of sector and industry um, kind of longer term outlook pieces, as well as some risk. And, you know, I think that's really where our coverage of ESG related topics really kind of line up with our department's mandate. So we spend a lot of time thinking about certainly in the automotive space, but also in whether we're thinking of minings and minerals, whether we're thinking about utilities, of how decarbonization of the economy and moving a little bit more to electrification is going to have sort of implications in the long-term prospects and you know, even some of the short and medium-term investment opportunities in those sectors. And zero emission vehicles is a really great example of that transformation that's maybe mitigating some risks. And you've done some really interesting analysis of that trend. And, and there is kind of a demand and supply side to that question. One of the pieces that you wrote, and I've seen a lot about this topic recently, is around almost like a tipping point idea that, that the demand uptake for zero emissions vehicles, particularly electric vehicles, is growing. It still seems low, but I guess the trajectory of how it is growing and the, the level of uptake that it's reached could be indicative of the pace of future growth. Are you able to elaborate on that aspect of your analysis? You know, absolutely. That's a great point, Michael. And so I think if we think to right now where we are in kind of the North American context, you know, Canada so far this year is already pushing into, you know, kind of the mid 7% range of EV sales as a component of, of total kind of new vehicle sales. And the U.S. is a little bit behind us at, you know, just closing in on almost six and a half percent this year. And I think it shows you that, you know, we could really be seeing quite an acceleration of adoption. 
Now, I think there's two components of that that you pointed out. So one is on the consumer side, right? So I think the biggest change, certainly so far this year, is that as gasoline prices pushed certainly close to $2 a liter in Canada, you know, well above $4 a gallon in the U.S. at, at different parts of this year, I think it what it highlighted to consumers is this expectation that gasoline prices would remain relatively low in North America for the foreseeable future is a little bit more up in the air. And I think there's going to continue to be a lot of volatility in energy markets. And I think that's creating a little bit more interest in EVs than I think they'd traditionally gotten. And on the supply side, though, I think that's really what is the big hurdle. So, you know, the biggest challenge to getting an, an EV today is being able to go out and find one, you know, at a dealership or to be able to order one. And, I, you know, I think that's changing to a degree. And I think what you're seeing that really reflected in is this is something that automakers just really see as a an immense business opportunity. I think there's a one, you know, kind of way you can think about it is for the past decade or so, a lot of automakers have essentially been selling unprofitable lower cost cars, mostly to meet fuel economy standards. And what EVs kind of provide a lot of these automakers a chance is essentially to stop selling those. And instead they're going to get to sell a product that, you know, on average is you know, sometimes selling for as much as a, uh, you know, 20 to 30% markup on a traditional kind of internal combustion engine vehicle. So I think both of those factors are really aligning to kind of bring that adoption curve along, irrespective of, you know, kind of what country's ambitions are on decarbonization and electrification. So I'm still focusing on the demand side then, you know, just anecdotally, you could see that early adopters of EV vehicles maybe we're doing so for value reasons or lifestyle reasons. And, and you point out that now, you know, we have this environment of higher gas prices where the economics of it, even at a personal level, are making more sense to people. How important is that factor, do you think, for there to be wide-scale adoption of, of EVs? Will the economics have to continue to make sense for, for this to broaden out from a pure demand perspective? What's your take on the importance of the economics behind EVs? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, subsidies are have certainly been a big part of the EV adoption story. If you take Norway as, you know, kind of the example that people often lead with, I think what you have to remember is, you know, some of the degrees of uh, subsidies we've seen talked about are even the ones that made it into the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, they're certainly significant. And I think what they really are about is, you know, the big difference between buying an EV today versus buying a conventional vehicle is often on that capital cost piece, right? Anything that goes towards that capital cost side is, you know, what really can pull people even more towards that equation it's often you know the scale of those subsidies that can make a big difference so in norway you know they have about a 25 percent value added tax on new vehicles and for a long period of time they're you know since made some adjustments to uh to those credits based on the actual purchase price but they were exempting electric vehicles from that right so that's a quite a sizable subsidy and it essentially changes the economics for consumers right if you were going to consider buying a conventional vehicle you know if even if that was your preference just from a pure cost point of view it just made way more sense to kind of transition to buy an e-vehicle in that setting and so i think that's certainly what you're seeing in in other parts of the global economy that have brought in some tax credits as well and i think with the inflation reduction act right most North American, you know, policy areas couldn't really afford that kind of a subsidy, at least on the surface of, you know, 25%. But, you know, the $7,500 kind of potential credit for the IRA, you know, is roughly about 15% of the cost of a new vehicle in that space. And that really does bridge most of the difference in capital costs between those vehicles. You've mentioned that EVs are typically more expensive than internal combustion engines. 
And I've heard some chatter about some of these government subsidies that, you know, they introduce the subsidy and then the prices go up. Do you, do you still, though, think that government support for the purchase of zero emission vehicles or electric vehicles is going to increase the uptake of, of that technology? I mean, I would say that historical evidence largely are supportive of the view that those subsidies do make a difference on the margin. Like certainly we did see Ontario take a little bit of a hit when they got rid of their subsidy a few years ago relative to where they kind of were positioned between BC and Quebec before. So I do think on the margin it matters. And I think what is changing a little bit. So right now, you know, probably if you're going to buy a new car today, the lifetime costs of buying an EV car today are kind of more affordable than, you know, a conventional vehicle. The challenge is most Canadians, most Americans actually don't drive cars, right? I would say three quarters of all new vehicle purchases are what you'd qualify as trucks today. And so I think that's the challenge. So the economics is a little bit more unfavorable, um, depending on exactly what gas prices you want to kind of factor into ownership costs there of conventional trucks today. And so I think what's going to change, though, is by 2030, I think, irrespective of exactly what subsidy you have, the economics of buying an EV truck are quickly going to turn over as well in favor of EVs. It's just a question of the pace of adoption you want, right? So what subsidies are going to do are pull a little bit more of that adoption forward in time. So it depends if you want to hit some of those kind of interim targets. In some consumer surveys, there's still a lot of concern and question among households of, you know, exactly what are the economics and what are some of the costs associated with having an EV. Like, I think people are still quite concerned that the maintenance costs of having an EV might be more on par with, you know, what you'd expect with a traditional vehicle today. And, you know, that's generally not the case. Most of the difference in cost is all in the purchase price as opposed to the operation. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I find amazing about the EV product is that there are such lower maintenance costs and that must be changing the whole business model of auto dealers. I think one of your papers noted that there was a few years ago, two models basically on the market of zero emission vehicles, and now there's 62. How are auto dealers and manufacturers thinking about this market, what do you think is their rationale and their view on the economics from their perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think you can you can obviously speculate, but I think, you know, a big thing for them is, you know, just seeing, you know, some of the comments that people like, you know, the head of, uh, of Ford, like Jim Farley have just said, right? I think they look at the differences of margins between, you know, kind of more the traditional automakers and Tesla. And so, you know, I think last year there were some comparisons where, you know, Tesla was basically having margins roughly five times what, uh, you know, kind of Ford had over the same period of time. And so I think for them, it's really this huge business case. It's sort of a chance to hit reset a little bit. So I think what a lot of automakers have seen over the past you know, two years is that in a kind of market where supply has been really challenged and you know, unit prices have been very high, it's just a lot easier to kind of manage your margins and you know, exist in that space than it has been in the more traditional one where there's you know, quite an oversupply of vehicles and you know, there's you need to kind of bring in a lot of incentives to clear out inventory uh, from month to month. I think a lot of automakers are also maybe seeing the opportunity to have a little bit more scale in the dealership network. GM has already committed to the idea that, you know, California's 2035 standard for fully phasing out kind of conventional vehicles perfectly lines up with their business model. Because I think what they're seeing, right, is that it makes a lot more sense to be producing vehicles that have higher margins and you actually get to sell at a profit as opposed to what they have been doing for a long time, which is mostly selling trucks, which they make money on and, you know, cars to kind of meet their efficiency standards that, you know, they're constantly losing dollars on. There's also challenges 
that are pretty evident in terms of wide-scale adoption of EVs. A couple of things that come to mind, one would be EV charging infrastructure, or if it's a hydrogen vehicle, having the infrastructure to refuel the supply chain challenges. I mean, if you want to get an EV now, you're on a waiting list for a long time, you know, 12 to 18 months sometimes. What are your thoughts about those challenges and how they could be overcome, what it means for the viability of the EV market? Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, there are some absolutely real challenges to adoption in this space. And I think, as we've talked before, I think, you know, consumer kind of information, consumer knowledge is certainly one of those things. And I think that's something that will change a little bit as more and more people kind of get experience with EVs. You know, a lot of people have actually never sat in an EV before and never seen one operate. And so I think as they kind of enter the market more, you know, a lot more people will kind of develop a little bit more comfort with the product. So I think that's one piece of it. You know, I think on the charging and infrastructure side, you know, in Canada, we have, you know, roughly kind of 7,000, you know, electrical chargers spread across the country today, only about 1,300 of those would be, so, you know, fast chargers, so to speak. And if you compare that, you know, kind of our network of gas stations, right, we have 18,000 gas stations or so. Um, and so I think what it says is, you know, we're still a ways away from having the kind of infrastructure to right size what that we want that market to look like five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. And so I think that what that speaks to is if you want, you know, to kind of have your light duty vehicle fleet kind of meet your climate ambitions, like you need to start planning today and you need to start making investments today. There are some other challenges to adoptions from kind of an emission reduction point of view, right? I think what we often forget a little bit about is that, you know, we don't just have one electricity market in North America or certainly in Canada, the United States, we have a whole bunch of them. And so in some markets, if we really want to be focused on decarbonization, we need to start making not just investments kind of on the, I would say the generation side, but a lot of transmission to, you know, kind of change the way that we think about our energy grid today to bring a lot more clean energy to parts of the country that have a little bit more fossil fuel intensive grid. Because I think at the end of the day, if you are shifting to EVs, you want to be shifting the primary energy to supply to more renewable sources as well. And so I think that is going to be another challenge. Yeah. I mean, it's a fair criticism of the move to EVs if we're charging vehicles using uh, unclean sources of electricity. So it's definitely going to have to be something that changes in tandem if the actual emissions challenges is going to be addressed. You've mentioned a couple of times uh, some of the legislation that's been put forward and, and recently passed that relates to this market, one being the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. Can you unpack that a little bit? For a long time, I think there's been this huge back and forth in the U.S. about whether we would ever see some of the climate change components of the original Build Back Better bill, you know, ever make it into legislation in the United States. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act maintained a lot of those exciting aspects, and I think in particular the ones that relate to electric vehicles as well. And so I think the biggest difference in the U.S. context is, you know, you didn't really have kind of a federal credit that, you know, met the kind of ambition that you know, the Biden administration had set forth to, you know, bring kind of emissions down by by 2030. And so I think what was really exciting about this is that for one, they've taken off the cap of what it used to be is once you've sold, once you sold kind of 200,000 vehicles um, as a, essentially as a fleet, um, then you your cars were no longer eligible for the credit. So I think that's one of the exciting changes. That means at least some of the more lower priced Tesla models will now once again be eligible for EV credits, which is you know certainly a huge piece of that adoption puzzle. 
the big thing for a consumer is now if you buy kind of an eligible vehicle, you're potentially going to get you know roughly $7,500 back. And so the second piece of that is from the context of you know the North American you know kind of supply chain and automotive sector in particular, that's going to drive just a dramatic amount of investment just in mining, materials, manufacturing, because a lot of our supply chain isn't quite up to you know scale to meet kind of maybe our 2035 and our 2030 electric vehicle production goals if we're going to kind of you know hit those targets. Now, I think there's lots of questions about exactly from an individual consumer point of view, what is going to qualify? Because I think today, you know, certainly when we're thinking of things like cobalt or a lot of other battery components, it's sometimes a little bit more opaque exactly where those are coming from. And so I think there is going to be a little bit of a learning process to think exactly what models are going to qualify. If you were at all leaning towards getting an electric vehicle today, I think this is really going to push you over the threshold of making it a lot more feasible just from an economics point of view. What about the Canadian policy context? You mentioned the Canadian Emissions Reduction Plan and uh, Act. There's provincial initiatives. What's the, the playing field for EVs in Canada and how does it relate to the U.S.? We also had an update or an extension of our federal subsidy for EVs. Now, I will say it's still a little bit below kind of where the Inflation Reduction Act hits. So I think it does suggest, you know, if Canada wants to kind of meet that same ambition that the United States is laying forth here, yeah, we might want to rethink a little bit of, you know, kind of the subsidies we're providing through that program. Some provinces, Ontario in particular, don't currently have an EV credit like other provinces, certainly BC, Quebec, and many others. And so I think that's one piece of it. I think a lot of the discussion and potential investments on kind of our critical mineral strategy really plays well with the Inflation Reduction Act. Friend shoring or this idea that, you know, a lot of the battery components, a lot of the critical kind of material components are going to have to be sourced from trade-friendly partners for the United States. Canada really stands to benefit from that. So I think those provisions of our Emissions Reduction Act really line up well and set a lot of industries in Canada up for success if they want to be kind of a part of this transition. So some might say that EUVs are kind of luxury goods that, you know, they've historically been quite expensive. You know, that's changing over time. There's more supply as we've discussed. Um, but what what's your take on uh, how these kind of government initiatives and the push towards zero emission vehicles is consistent with, you know, the different needs of, of society from lower income to higher income segments. The distributional aspect of this question is a really important one. I think what has changed quite dramatically in the past two years is, you know, new vehicle prices have just continued to ramp up where for a lot of households, the price point is just kind of put them out of reach, so to speak of being able to participate in the market. So I think for one aspect, you know, making sure that we have some means testing for these things makes a lot of sense. Because again, it is seems a little bit unfair for someone to you know, go buy, you know, sort of a hundred or $150,000 electric vehicle and then have the taxpayer partially subsidize that purchase when if someone's purchasing a vehicle of that price, then they have the means to do so on their own. And so I think the second piece of it is just, you know, providing more incentives for automakers to make more kind of mass market, lower price point. And if this is going to be a strategy that's going to both be a good business opportunity for everyone, but also to have a meaningful step in reducing our carbon emissions, then, you know, these vehicles have to be available and affordable for everyone. What do you think this means for the North American economy, U.S. and Canada? Car manufacturing is obviously a big part of our economy. But it strikes me that there's a whole supply chain and ecosystem around the manufacturing of EVs that we also could be supporting. 
What do you think this will mean for economic development? I think in the automotive space, in the minerals and mining space, I think in the utility space as well, just from a CapEx point of view, you know, these industries are going to see way more inflows than they've seen in the past, you know, several decades, which is more funds and more growth coming from these sectors that have, you know, struggled certainly over the past two decades as, you know, globalization has certainly pushed a lot of activity, you know, abroad as opposed to kind of onshoring it. And so I think that's certainly an exciting piece on the macro side. And then I think more from an equity and a social point of view, like when we think of the regions of the United States, of Canada, that, you know, have faced the highest costs of trade and globalization, places like southwestern Ontario, Quebec, certainly the Rust Belt in the Midwest in the U.S., those are all places that really stand to benefit, you know, substantially from, you know, kind of this transition and reimagining and reshoring of the kind of supply chain related to electric vehicles. We're bringing new jobs, new investment, new opportunities to places that, you know, haven't seen as nearly as much growth in those sectors for a long time. So just as a final thought for the audience, if you were speaking to a room of CEOs and investors, what would be your key takeaways and things to watch related to the growth in the zero emission vehicle market? Yeah, so I mean, I think it really comes back down to the supply chain piece of it, right? If we want to make this dream a reality, then it means that, you know, we have to start investing today, being able to have those mineral capacities to, you know, produce vehicles at scale. So I think that's one sector that I think is really worth watching. But just from kind of a business opportunity point of view, whether you operate in the utility space, whether you're operating in mining, whether you're operating in manufacturing, I think what this speaks to is there's going to be a lot of opportunity for finance opportunities to these industries, but also, you know, kind of partnering with governments a little bit more to kind of de-risk a lot of the innovation that's going to be required in these sectors. And so I think what I would be focused on is just making sure I have a pulse on where a lot of these sectors are going. I think another big piece of it is also just going to be in recycling. I think as we transition our supply chain to kind of produce a lot of these minerals, you know, in a more sustainable, environmentally friendly way. I think it's going to certainly benefit a lot of North American businesses as well if they're able to find ways to use materials more efficiently, recycle battery materials. So I think everyone should be focused on if they want to take part of the advantages of this potential growth. Well, thanks very much, Eric, for your time. It was a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.